Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. At Amazon, they had a very, very structured way of doing them, going through a hiring process. And they had 14 leadership principles that I still use since I've left there. I still have brought those with me and use them very closely. And there's three in particular that I always look at, regardless of the kind of seller that I'm looking for. I want to find someone who's customer obsessed. You're not starting with the customer's needs and working backwards to what you're going to provide to them. It's fraught with difficulty and often failure by not doing that. Welcome to On Target. My next guest, Jim McDonald, has had several years in customer-facing roles for B2B tech companies for over 25 years. His experience spans everywhere from startups to large enterprises, including serving as a consultant and board member for various Boston-based startups. As a mentor through MIT's Venture Mentoring Program and current CRO for the estate planning company Gentrio, Jim's favorite motto is, remember, it's not about you, it's about the customer. I can't wait to hear more about how he has built and sustained customer-centric teams over his tenured career. Now let's get into it. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion and empowering new voices is within any organisation. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customised to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change or diversity, Hirefall's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hirefall what you're looking for, then sit back, relax and wait to connect to top class talent. Send an email to team at hirefall.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefall.co. And don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Jim, welcome to On Target. Uh, thank you. Look forward to chatting. Absolutely. Now, Jim, over your career, I'm sure you've had many elevator pitches for different products, services, and solutions. But if you had to give an elevator for your pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, tell us how you'd introduce yourself. Well, basically, I, I think I've been around long enough to have made all the mistakes that people would make in trying to sell and learning from them. Uh, that's been the basis of, of my background and, and where I've learned over 25 years, you go through a lot. Uh, and I've really become, I think, very astute and, and, and very insightful around technology trends and how we bring value through technology to large enterprises to help improve their businesses. And I've done that for over the last five or six or seven big uh, disruptive technology changes that have taken place over the years and have been very successful at it. Tell us a bit more about your story, right? 25 years is a long time. Walk us through some of the, the key highlights throughout that time. Sure. Yeah. I started uh, uh, my sales career. I've been in the uh, professional uh, since I graduated back in 1983, my undergrad, and I have gone through all of the um, the other uh, types of departments within a, a typical tech company. My entire career has been in the tech industry, so I know it well, and I've enjoyed the travel uh, and the changes that have taken place along the way. And I started as a software engineer, so I've got a general knack 
and enthusiasm. You know, I think you really have to love what you do in your in your business and in your career. And I've always had an enthusiasm and interest in technology. And you know, as we all know, we all lived through. There's been so many great uh, advances and disruptions that have taken place over the course of the last 25 years. And I've had the ability to uh, work with customers from small companies. Like uh, my first foray into sales was a little company called Electronic Book Technologies, which you may not have heard of them, but they actually built one of the world's first commercial browsers. This is just when the Mosaic and Netscape browsers were coming out, and they came out with a browser that would allow large organizations to take all their paper-based publication budgets and eliminate them by putting all of their documents on a CD-ROM that's readable in an electronic book format with a browser front end. So very interesting technology. Again, big disruption, and we had a great time. You know, and the big things I learned there about selling was it's really great when you can have a very succinct value proposition that you can describe, you know, and communicate with your customers. And, you know, in that case we did, it was a very simple story uh, and we're extremely successful with it. I've also worked, you know, that uh, that was out in California when I was working with them in the San Francisco Bay Area. And from there, I had an opportunity to, to work for a very large organization, Oracle Corporation, as a global account manager. And this is right around 2000 when the Y2K challenges were taking place. And a lot of Oracle's largest organizations, Cisco and Seagate, which were the two I managed, had big global challenges to upgrade and and modernize their systems ahead of Y2K. So again, another big compelling event and urgency that created the opportunities for people like me to be able to go in and you know, get them to, to sign on to do these large uh, investments and projects. Y2K, like everyone else, hit me pretty hard. I'd left Oracle and done a few startups that had gone out of business, learning you know that you can have the best story in town, but if the customer is not in a position to open up their kimono or open up their pocketbooks to actively pursue and solve problems, they're going to be challenged by that. You know, it's going to be challenging to be able to sell. Um, so anyway, so oh, through these years and through all of the work that I've done and all the experiences I've had with some large companies like Oracle and Amazon, uh, small companies like this company, EBT, I've been able to uh, really get a good grasp and a sense. You know, people often say, uh, you need a good sales gut, and not that I necessarily believe in that being something that someone is born with. I think it's something you learn through experience. But you get to a point where you can sense, you know, in any given conversation where somebody is and where their head's at, and where they might be interested in working with you or investing in you or spending money on the on the service you offer. You know, and that's really a key to being a really good seller, particularly in high tech. Really fascinating. There's there's a lot to unpack in that. One of the things that stood out to me is when you mentioned the the importance of looking out for customers that are really willing to put their hands in their their pocketbook, so to speak, and that promise of customer centricity also on that. So just walk us through how you've gone about actually choosing the right type of companies that have a product, service, and solution that the market actually has appetite for. My initial response would be, I didn't always make good choices. <laughs> I think we, you know, you you make choices with the best information you have, and selling is is really interesting because you never have a hundred percent of the information. You really can't make a, you know, always make the best decision. You've got to make decision oftentimes with with severe lack of information. But you've got to, you know, timing it requires you to make a decision 
sometimes before you want to. And and I've gone to companies where it has been challenging. And, and I feel the thing that's gratifying about my career at this point is oftentimes I'm coming into companies and being asked to come into companies to help them get to the point where they have this the the compelling solution, the story and the positioning that makes a company really, you know, interested in them. And they're going and approaching those companies in an interesting way. A good example is a company company with now uh, Gentrio, very small startup. Um, I'm acting CRO for them. And when I first got here, they were looking at various ways to try to sell an estate planning solution. And the reality is, is estate planning is not something people love to do. It's hard conversations they have to have with family and loved ones. And for us as a small company to try to sell a product direct to consumers was going to be really challenging. And so when we looked at all the different ways in which we could sell this primarily through channel partners and, and referral partners, you know, we realized we couldn't sell this as its own thing. We have to make it part of and a compelling part of. Uh, and just this morning, we had a great call with a financial institution who was trying to figure out how to make the advisor more central to their clients' lives. And they're, they're looking at trying to build a portfolio of tools that the advisor can use to help people, not just with financial planning, but with life planning. And so we found a way to make estate planning very relevant to that conversation and to that company, not for the value of estate planning in and of itself, but the ability for that to be a tool to add to a tool toolkit that that advisor can then use to have a more enhanced and sticky conversation and relationship you know, with those people who primarily came to them maybe to manage an IRA or a small investment account, you know, they're now in a position to be able to grow that to a strategic relationship. So, you know, it's not just the company and the product and the, and the customer uh, and their, you know, their interest. It's, it's crafting the message and then finding the right places where you have channels that are incented and, and see value in, in adding that to their portfolio and driving that out to the customer, you know, is a much bigger value proposition. Makes complete sense. Now, uh, being able to take a message out to the market starts with hiring great talent. And you've had experience both in the startup ecosystem as well as with large enterprises. You mentioned the likes of Oracle. So, Jim, just walk us through some of your core principles around hiring criteria and any differences or nuances that you've seen in hiring great talent in a startup versus hiring great talent in an established organization. As you'd said to me earlier, there's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> certainly. And, and you know, one of the things I think I've found is it's not always easy to transition. I've been fortunate because of the roles I've had and the people I know and relationships of it to be able to do some of this transition between big companies and smaller companies. But bigger companies often act differently and the kinds of selling sellers you want to hire in that environment oftentimes are different than those you're going to uh, want to bring into, let's say, a startup organization. And there's lots of pieces to that. But primarily, you know, you want to find people, and, and I think at smaller companies, you're going to want to find people who are much more willing to work independently, fail a lot more quickly, have a super positive, you know, go, go get them attitude and know they have to do a lot of things uh, themselves, a lot of heavy lifting themselves. They might not have completed collateral. They might not have a really strong marketing engine that's bringing inbound leads. They might have to do more cold calling. They're going to kind of put their their boots on and trudge through a lot of unfinished pieces in a sales process and a selling model um, that a lot of people who 
are used to maybe being a strategic account executive or working on larger, more strategic deals, it's a hard transition when you have typically have a team. You know, when I was at Oracle as a global account manager, I had 14 people on my Seagate account to manage that global relationship. And I had a lot of administrative support. So it was a very different kind of environment than this, hey, you're on your own. Good luck. You know, here's a here's a Salesforce login and some base collateral. And, you know, we'll see if we can get some engineers to give, you know, to jump in and help you with technical discussions and demos. You've got to really be very entrepreneurial uh, in that scenario versus the other. So that's a general description of some of the differences. But in salespeople in general, you know, I, um, I when I worked at Amazon, we hired over 100 people. Um, I was directly re- involved in the hiring over 100 people as we grew that organization. And while Amazon's a massive company, we worked in a very small startup that we grew with inside of Amazon. So we had the benefit of a brand, which gets you lots of meetings. You know, when I worked at Oracle and Amazon, it's easy to pick up the me- a phone and get a meeting with a CFO or a CIO or a CTO. But when you work for startups, you don't have that, that luxury. But at Amazon, they had a very, very structured way of doing them, going through a hiring process. And they had 14 leadership principles that I still use since I've left there. I still have brought those with me and use them very closely. And there's three in particular that I always look at, regardless of the kind of seller that I'm looking for. I want to find someone who's customer obsessed. And we've talked about this already a couple of times. I truly believe, and you know, when I didn't believe it, I got burned. But if you're not starting with the customer's needs and working backwards to what you're going to provide to them, it's fraught with difficulty and often failure by not doing that. But you need to find someone who's customer obsessed to want to love the customer's problem and really develop the rapport and relationship with that customer to want to go solve it with them. That's number one, always. The second one is a bias for action. So low patience. I want to collect some information. I may not have 100% of the information, but when I have what I feel is enough, I need to go with that, that gut and I need to be able to take action. I can't wait until I have all the facts. I've got to be able to move quickly. And that's primarily due to the fact that, you know, the environment we live in in high tech is moves so fast, you can't afford to wait. So those are the first two. And the other one, which is really their track record, and it's called deliver results. You know, it's, it's the work I'm doing. may not always be a revenue and a, and a quota number you're hitting, but am I delivering results and showing a path to helping a startup company develop the right sales processes, giving feedback to help make sure the product the holes in the products are being filled from the customer's perspective. You know, and I'm doing the activities necessary to deliver results that are going to help bring that company forward. It's a fascinating, broader conversation here, Jim. And I can relate to a lot of what you've said. You know, I spent some time with AWS and and certainly got to experience what it's like to be a, a small cog in a monstrous wheel. And, and I spent a large part of the rest of my career in either startups or scale-ups as I currently am in. And it, it's a completely different ball game. You know, I remember being at AWS and doing outreach to customers. And I mean, you pick up that phone and you, you got a smile at the other end, or at least uh, there's familiarity with who you are and what you do and, and a warm welcome to at least entertain an initial conversation typically. And then, you know, I've been on the other side of the spectrum, right? And it's just a, it's a complete hustle. It requires a, a different mentality to get the phone slam down on you time after time after time and still find a way to pick yourself up and and run at things at full pace. So it's a fascinating broader debate and something that I'd encourage a lot of salespeople to try and get some experience on 
both ends of the spectrum because it's very unique and it really lets you know who you are and, and where you're better served. One of the questions I did have through that, Jim, was those characteristics that you spoke about from your time at, um, with Amazon, those three, how much of that do you feel can be developed in someone versus them being innate characteristics in someone that you expect them to come to the table to you with? I don't know how many people are born sellers. I mean, you hear that, that comment sometimes. I think people are born with the attributes that could make them into good sellers, things like enthusiasm, things self-confidence, but not cockiness, the willingness to get knocked down over and over and over again. And you know, you, you stand up, you brush yourself off, you look and say, what can I take from this to learn to maybe avoid that next time and the commitment to get better. Those general kinds of attributes, I think, are really great ones for selling. Uh, but as far as the ones I actually stated, you know, deliver results is basically your end results, which uh, which are your track record, which is isn't always is always going to start at a best choppy. You may you know get lucky and be in the right place at the right time and 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 get the right territory and be successful. But you know, over time, over five, ten, twelve years of selling, you know, that's going to even out, and your results over that period of time should build, and you'll learn from that and get better at. It. So that's kind of a learned skill. Uh, I think the customer obsession, again, that's that passion and excitement to want to understand, you know, curious, naturally curious about what the customer is trying to do, more so almost than your own solution, right? A lot of times we get so caught up trying to pitch our, our features and our benefits, we're not listening enough to really love and understand the customer's problem. And then speaking to those problems and the solutions to those problems and how your products are going to solve them, right? And so having a, custos, a a natural curiosity to want to understand the needs of others is a sort of a foundation underneath that. And bias for action is the other one I mentioned. And I think that is something you probably are going to be bored. You know, you don't want to be patient. You don't want to be, uh, you know, a good, a good engineer is not a good, often a good salesperson because they're going to want to do all the detailed investigation and get it so it's 100% perfect. It's never going to break. It's always going to work. You know, I need to make sure. That's why I love one of my favorite things I do now is I, I'm doing some work in the area of work with startups. You mentioned MIT uh, and the venture mentoring service. It's a whole lot of fun because you have all these technical people who are trying to sell and they're waiting for the perfect situation, right? And you can't do that. You know, you have to have bias for action. You have to say, this is this close? Yeah. It's not what I envisioned the product to be for the next, you know, three years. But, you know, if this gets me six months further and I can solve this person's near-term problem, but it's not going to be quite the development path I was going to take, that's okay. You know, to be able to, to be action-oriented, said, I need to get to the next step with this customer or I need to, you know, disengage, right? Because if you're not going to be able to accommodate and bend to their needs to some degree, you know, you might as well go, go look somewhere else. So Jim, we've unpacked some of the key characteristics that are important to you when it comes to hiring salespeople. With your time and tenure, I'd equally love to unpack how you think about developing leaders and hiring leaders and whether a lot of that criteria is shared at the leadership tier or actually whether you feel that there's more unique characteristics that you'd look for when it comes to hiring and developing leaders. It's probably best to begin with the, the ongoing and probably never-ending debate between can a good salesperson be a good sales leader? I think the answer ultimately is it depends, and it depends on the person. 
I think the best sales leaders were okay or decent salespeople. They weren't incredibly over the top, off the charts sales, individual sales contributors, but they were the ones who did fairly well, made their number, and seemed to be really good at understanding how to bring efficiencies to their processes and how to bring higher win rates and, you know, what are the mechanisms and processes and things that we can, you know, that I can do that can translate well to kind of a management role, right? Because when you set yourself up in a management and I've had an opportunity, you know, I had a, I had a team of about 35 people that I had at one point with one of my startups uh, during my career. And frankly, I was not happy there because as you go up the chain or you look to become more leadership oriented, you become more strategic and you step back, you necessarily have to step back to some degree from the customers. You can't be on every one of these sales calls. You know, if you've got 20 salespeople who are selling for you, you've got to be able to come back and, and be less engaged in the day-to-day activities. And I've always loved being with, you know, and, and really participating in and loving that customer problem, as I said earlier. So the people that do well in the sales role, but also do really well in, in how they set up efficiencies and they're always trying to help make your CRM system. And they're always the ones who, when you interview, when you ask them, you know, necessarily, if you get a small team, you got a a new candidate coming on board and you want to interview them, uh, you know, you pick some people. They're the ones that really probe well and really connect well. And they're the ones where the candidate said, hey, I really enjoyed speaking and working with this person. Or there's signs you can see of someone who's got some attributes and maybe people skills to take on leadership role having direct reports, and then working on, you know, how do I build a process that's scalable so we can bring on more people and build that team up? Absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. And when you then also create that separation factor between enterprise leaders or leaders within a startup, what are some of the, you know, different attributes that you feel are a a bit more applicable to someone who needs to build a team, build a function from scratch versus someone walking into uh, an established organization? I mean, looking back on my career, you know, I was given the opportunity to move into management roles in in some not really very super large companies, you know, $50, $75 million in revenue, had a national team of maybe 20 people and needed a leader. And and they had enough process around where when I came in, I had these some of these attributes, I think, that my manager recognized in me. And they offered me the role to move into a regional director role. So it was more of a I think the the medium to larger companies are going to probably give you a better opportunity, you know, for someone looking at their sales career, wanting to go into management, to give you a path that you have the best chance of being successful at. You know, you got to be a special person, and you got to have a lot of things happen right in a startup organization where it's very bootstrapped. You know, and maybe you're the first or second salesperson, and this is always a hard challenge. I see this in all, all, all many startups I work with where they bring in a salesperson who's a great individual contributor, but came in on the promise that if I do well, you know, you're going to put me in management or are you going to make me the CRO, right? Or head of sales. There's a high failure rate for that because you don't have a lot of support structure around you. You don't have other peers that are in the organization that can help you and coach you in, in assisting you in the management and leadership skills you need to develop in order to be successful in the role, you're kind of on your own in startups, you know, where you're, okay, the founder gives you that position, but you don't, you know, you don't have, you don't have anybody as a mentor to help you 
grow the sales organization in a way that's going to be sustainable or scalable. It is an interesting one. And I've spoken uh, multiple times about just the lack of sales leadership training and enablement that, that that's out there. We uh, see plentiful for sellers and, and, and field teams, but I still feel there's a, a drought really at the leadership tier. I, I feel that there's many, many examples I see from my peers that just are kind of having to figure it out once they get there. And that's all too common. So I, I definitely second what you're talking about in terms of having mentorship and certain structures around you to set yourself up for success. I want to fast forward now, Jim, into talking a bit more about some things around operational excellence in a way, really how you structure your week and set yourself up for success. Just walk us through what a, a typical week in the life of Jim looks like. I mean, one of the great things about being in, this, in any sales role is it's always dynamic. And, you know, the big joke is always, well, I Sunday night, I spend my time, I laid out the, the priorities for the week, my schedule's, you know, set and I've confirmed my meetings and I'm all set to go. And then Monday comes and it all goes out the window. You know, now it doesn't all go out the window, but, you know, a lot of it does because, you know, stuff happens. People call, you know, the customer you thought was dead is has popped back in and wants to make a fast decision or, you know, a deal you thought was going to close isn't, you know, is now at risk and, you've got people that you're hiring and you've got all kinds of things that go on and the priorities shift. And it's a bit chaotic, but it's also a bit exciting. And it's part of the reason why I think, you know, those of us who have made sales their career get excited about because one of my, my other mantras besides, you know, always uh, listen to the customer is, you know, if you don't like the way things are right now, don't worry, they'll change. And if you do like them, enjoy it because it's going to change, right? So you always want to make sure uh, you're ready for some chaos during the week, but but I'm a big believer in you know there's two there's two things in sales that matter activities and closing skills. So you want to make sure and set up your time and make sure you prioritize the little time you have, the relatively little time you have to do the activities that are going to move the ball forward, whether you're an individual contributor or a leader. Right? What are the things I need to put in place and set aside that I want to do as activities that are going to move things forward in my organization or in my, in me and my career and my, my role in this company. And then the other piece is closing skills. You know, I've got to make sure that I've got the ability to go out and look, you know, assess where I am, you know, and at different times during a quarter or a month or a year, it's going to be different. You know, I tend to think of more in terms of months and quarters, uh, enterprise sales typically, that's very typically the case. You know, you come into a month, how did I do last month? What's my pipeline look like coming into the month? Where do I need to spend my time to make sure at the end of this month, I'm in a better position in the areas that I need to be and I'm sustaining in the areas that, that I'm doing well in. And then make sure all that's leading, you know, leading towards obviously the goals I want to accomplish longer term, primarily, you know, how am I making towards my number? How am I making towards building an organization? How am I doing making sure we're meeting the strategic objectives of the company beyond revenue? So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty dynamic. So it's hard for me to say what's a week look like. Monday's typically an admin week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday's typically customer facing or people facing to make sure I'm working with folks, whether it's traveling to organizations or, or locations or customer sites. I want to see us do more of that. And I'm glad this COVID craziness is over because we've all become a little too reliable on like what we're doing here with a, with a Zoom type meeting or email or disconnected dialogue, in my opinion. And we got to get to much more customer facing. So 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is much more, what are we doing to drive the, our customers and prospects forward? And then Friday is typically sort of looking back and assessing where we're at and you know continuing. And I usually have information on each of the people that report to me and the organization I have and sort of you know make sure on a weekly basis I'm coming back and touching those. Either I missed completely and didn't do anything that week and I got to make sure it's a priority next week or what did I learn and what kinds of things am I tracking towards, especially for if I have a team, I want to make sure weekly I'm thinking about and looking at each of my team members' own development. And, you know, this comes with having already spoken to them of where they want to go, what they're looking for, what's important to them, where they see their weaknesses are, how I can support them, making sure I'm moving that ball, you know, moving the, the ball forward on their desires and their career development and their contribution to my organization on a weekly basis. And that typically happens on a Friday for rolling back in uh, for the following week. We share some similarities actually in terms of the way we structure or think about the working week. The way that it, it looks to myself and, and my team is that Mondays are predominantly focused around forecasting and one-to-ones and pipeline generation. And then Tuesday to Thursday is all about customers as the priority and then deal reviews kind of secondary to that because it's still a link to the customer. And then Friday is all about enablement, territory planning, and a bit of a, a look back. So uh, we share some synergy there, and, and I absolutely see the value in that structure. You may have noticed, Jim, I have a picture behind me, which is of Muhammad Ali. I'm a massive combat sports fan. And some people liken our careers to athletes, right, and, and sports people, because they say you, you kind of got to get in make your money and get out because it takes so much out of you as an individual because of the pressures, the demands, the consistency of targets and beyond. And here you are 25 years deep, still a current day operator. What's the secret? How have you sustained over such an extended period of time? I have no idea. No. <laughs> uh, I, I love the picture of Muhammad Ali. A short side story is I, I also am a great fan of his. I'm just a wonderful human being. Did a lot for everybody, touched so many lives. You know, I love and I love Billy Crystal's eulogy, which I'm sure you've listened to and everyone's listened to time and again. And what a what a just incredible impact he had. And my favorite story with that is I sent I lived spent time in Munich, and while I was there all by myself trying to figure things out, I'd go to this restaurant bar in the ground floor of the flat I lived in, and I got to know Marco, the the owner, and we used to chat about things. And and one of my favorite things was when I left. I sent him my favorite poster of Muhammad Ali, which he sent me a picture of, and it's on his bar, you know, right in the center of his bar. So it's a really great thing that tied us together. But I think it's, you know, it's two things. One is I I actually enjoy what I do. I enjoy the, you know, the challenge and the process. And I think I've learned not to let it get to me. So I think of the things that are the positives, like having engagement with customers, developing a relationship, earning their trust and really working on, you know, making their jobs, their careers, their companies move forward with what you can offer and what you can do. And frankly, if, if we can't do that in some way or we can't see it leading to that in some way, it's hard to make a case for a big deal. And as you probably know, and everybody who's been in tech sales in particular, there's a lot of big deals that happen that no one gets any value whatsoever out of. And it's all because of the marketing or the hype or, you know, look at AI right now and the don't get me wrong, there's some great AI capabilities out there and great solutions, but there's also a lot of AI that, that was you know, sold 
that people spent a lot of money on that just never had any chance of, of being successful. And it was more because, hey, I want to say I, my company's committed to AI and we invested $3 million or you know, whatever. It, and we'll, you know, we've, I've done those kinds of deals. But, you know, for me, it's more about, you know, the excitement of going and say, hey, we can actually impact these companies and these organizations and how make their lives better. And then feel the pressure, you know, understand the, the, the need, understand the end of quarter craziness and communication management that you have to do up your chain, your senior leadership to help set expectations and, you know, and do things, but, but not let it get to you. I mean, I remember early in my career, uh, my wife waking me up out of my sleep because I'm sitting up in the bed having a conversation with the CFO of Oracle on why we didn't close a deal that I was trying to close the end of that quarter, like complete stress, you know, stress overload. And I can compartmentalize that now and I can leave that at the office and come home, but it doesn't mean I'm less, I'm less worried about it. I'm, I'm going to spend less time on it. I've just learned how to manage and cope with that as well. I think the burnout happens when you let that stay in you and, and fester in you, and that can have a real detrimental effect on your health and your aging and everything else over time if you let it. I noticed in that, Jim, you said you've learned how to handle that now. And several times you used the word, I've learned to, which really indicates the fact that it, it's probably taken some time for you to get to a point where you're as efficient with managing this, uh, managing your energy and uh, this ability to shift your perspective. So if you're talking now out there to that first time sales leader who's just gotten their promotion, they, they're looking at the year ahead. They're excited, but daunted by the reality that they've got a big target, a new team. You know, what tactical advice would you give to that sales leader to try and help them fast track where you are already mentally? Especially if it's a new, if it's someone new, you know, if they're being promoted in my organization, I'm going to make sure they know they're going to be given a little bit of leeway and a little bit of, you know, understanding like, you know, you're going to, you're commit to a number in a quarter or, um, you know, uh, performance things, you know, we're going to give you a little bit of leeway and I'm going to make sure they know that and say, take advantage of that. And, you know, the best thing you can do is get your team and those resources you have selling, get them to be honest with you. There's no time, you know, and this is, this is another, I probably have seven or eight mantras, right? But one of them, another one of them is get to the truth, right? And don't, you don't need, don't sugarcoat. I've seen most sales organizations flail and, and struggle mightily because the salesperson, the hunter out in the field is painting a rosy picture to their manager and their manager is now adding their rosy picture to it. And by the time it gets somewhere else, it's nothing like the deal that's actually you know going on there in the field. It's completely fabricated, right? So number one is make sure you have a really good, honest and critical understanding of what you really have in front of you. And then from that, you know, if you have a good meeting, it doesn't mean the deal closed. You know, you had a good meeting and you, you know, the worst is, hey, I had a great meeting. I said, great. What's the next step? Oh, I didn't ask. Well, you had a shitty meeting. Sorry, you had a bad meeting. But get people to be on, you know, get your people now that you're managing, get their trust and get them. You, you want bad news early. You want honest information. And when there is a deal that's going, you want to be able to communicate that up so that people get genuinely excited about the deals that are real. And now you have the ability to get, you know, the resources of the company around those ones that really matter. If you don't have that, that's one of the fundamental things to be accurately understand what's really going in and you're going on in your 
your team and the patch to be able to, and then be able to effectively communicate that to leadership. Makes complete sense. We've uh, gotten onto the topic of deals. So let's spend a bit of time talking about the premise of winning business, closing deals. Talk to us, Jim, about some of the core principles that you have in your mind when it comes to winning business, whether it's a certain way of thinking, a methodology or anything in between. Yeah, you know, I've I'm a big believer. You know, I've I've studied and have taken I think attribute pieces from lots of different sales methodologies. I'm also a big believer in tracking everything. You know, first thing I do usually when I walk into an organization is I, I say, oh, what do you use for a CRM? It's HubSpot. I say, okay, here's our new saying: if it's not in HubSpot, it didn't happen. So if you're not tracking the information and it's not in there, I can't even talk to you about it because it's not it's not real, right? We have to. And that doesn't mean I want people spending a whole day every week updating HubSpot. I want them to integrate, you know, their CRM into the daily activities they do. And today it's so easy with Salesforce and, you know, I mentioned HubSpot already and others, you know, you can have it on your phone. If you make a phone call, do it from the CRM system, then it pops up a little note and now it logs you to like all these things. So now you can effectively see the statistical information that you can then relate to a sales process, right? And now compare one rep to another rep and territories and territories, and you have some reliable, tangible data to get these interesting. So that's kind of number one. And then number two is, you know, I've, you know, done the Sandler sales, the spin selling. I'm a big fan of the challenger sale just because of the attitude you want to have. You want to basically challenge the customer. And again, it's loving that customer's problem and challenging them on how, you know, articulating and quantifying what these problems are, because if they do that and you can get them to do that, one, it's great for them, and two, it's really great for going forward You know, with, with communication with customer, right? So you're earning their trust and moving things forward. So those are some fundamentals. Then beyond that, once you go beyond that, you, know, you now want to start thinking about what do I need to do to make sure I validated what I'm hearing from you know, one person or another person in the new organization. So how big of a connection do I have into this company? How do I get other people involved? How do I get people in my company involved and constituents so I can now validate things? Because another truism in sales, which I'm sure you would agree with, is prospects often lie. They don't mean to, but they don't want to, you know, no one, nobody wants to say no, right? And what ends up happening is they, you know, you, so you've got to be able to have, you know, again, get a dialogue going and a trust going with the customer. So they give you real information. And as soon as they're giving more truthful information, you now can take that and assess it. And oftentimes it's a no. If it's not feasible, you know, it's much, much better. You know, yes is the best answer. A fast no is the second best answer. And anything that's a slow no is a waste of everybody's time. And so you've got to be able to, you know, assess those and offer opportunities to the customers to either say yes and enthusiastically to the point where they're giving you all the information to help you navigate and articulate how you can solve their problem, or it's a no and you move on. Those are some of the core components. Through all of that learning, Jim, I'd, I'd love to know if there's a deal that sticks out in your, your mind or your memory, really a key takeaway, a big learning that you had from that deal, which uh, you feel that the audience could potentially take away and learn from as well. You know, it's funny, uh, most of the ones that come to mind when you say something like that are ones where we were losses, you know, where ones where we came in. But I'll tell you about one that I thought was, you know, again, after learning and losing a few times, 
I had this one opportunity. It was an existing customer, and they had an inventory management system. And I was, you know, they were my customer. They were using ours, right? And they brought in a new senior leader of the warehousing and fulfillment. And, you know, I looked at this person's background, did some homework, and realized that this person had just installed my competitor, his previous company, and had now come to this company. So my suspicion, and, you know, after asking a few people, because I had a lot of good good contacts there, they were saying that, you know, he's making a case internally that, you know, this current solution is going to work and he's going to want to, you know, bring in and do a do a, a bake-off and review and see and potentially replace us. It was clear from the outset that he he wanted the other solution. And sometimes you get to a point where it's where you, you just know no matter what you do, and this is the fun part about selling, right, is the story you have and the solution you offer can get you in the door and create interest. But the deal happens with people. And it's their, who, where they are, what's it mean to them and their career, who they're coming from, who do they already have relationships with. And you kind of assess all that relative to your positioning and competitive positioning and you usually get a pretty good picture. And it's not usually about, hey, they do this thing better and you don't. It's more about like this gentleman had or a competitor uh, in his pocket. And he, you know, he loved working with them, loved the rep. They'd been good friends, you know, where they would tell me about the golf outings. They do, you know, these kinds of things. So there's only one way to change this. And what we've got to do is we've got to, one, get a fair comparison. And I need to make sure he's not the decision maker. So what I did was I actually had a good meeting with him, went to lunch, but then came back and wrote up a summary. And I sent it internally to my leadership and basically was very frank about, this isn't going to work. He's in, we might as well just not even like, da, 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 there's no, we're not going to get a fair comparison. And I accidentally CC'd him and the CFO of that company on that email. Wow. <laughs> and then it created a fair amount of anger, but it also then opened up a real dialogue and it got a CFO involved now saying, hey, no, 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 here's, you know, and then now he's got a new appreciation for what we've been doing for the company and the other pieces. And so at least now we got to a point where I felt like we were on a much level playing field and he, you know, he's not the only decision maker anymore. Because right? otherwise we would have lost. I love that story, Jim. Honestly, it's a great story. Thank you very much for sharing that. I've, I've got a couple more questions for you. One is just, as you look back and reflect over the past 25 years with the foresight and the wisdom that you have now, if you could go back, would you have done anything differently? Yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, there's there's certainly lots of deals and maybe a few startup companies that didn't pan out the way I'd wanted them. Uh, one startup I worked for, that company, uh, uh, EBT, that had that browser way back when. I wish I'd stayed with them longer because it just was a good ride. I got an opportunity and was recruited somewhere else and, and took it, you know, had big eyes around. Uh, it was actually Oracle, so... You know, although I did, you know, ended up doing well at Oracle. So I guess that's not, I think that for me, and it's more personal, I wish I had done more international work sooner. I'd always had a desire uh, and an interest in doing things and really myself, you know, getting immersed in culture, different cultures and different societies and different, you know, ways of life and different business models outside of the U.S., and I did some of that. I did some early in my career uh, when I was a software engineer. And then I did some, obviously, I had a great opportunity with Amazon when we started a business here in the U.S. It was very successful after two years. And my boss, 
who was running the division at the time came to me and said, okay, you know, let's sit down. We're going to do our planning for next year. What do you want to do? And I said, well, are we rolling this out in Europe <laughs> next year? And she's, you know, and she was actually very supportive and, and introduced me and offered to support me. And, you know, I had this opportunity to go live in, in Europe for two and a half years. And it's, it was just eye opening. I think, you know, not to go too far into the, the state of the United States, where it is now in politics and, and everything else. I just really wish I had done it sooner. And it's amazing the perspective you get and a worldview you get that you don't have if you don't go live somewhere else, you don't go immerse yourself in other in other cultures. And it brings you back here, I think, with a better perspective. And I feel like I'm better, I'm a better seller, I'm a better manager now uh, because of that. It's a great call out. Great call out. I've got one final question for you, Jim, which is what is the single best piece of advice that you'd give to any sales leader that's listening right now to help them to up level in their career? Don't be afraid of the risk, especially in the sense of picking how do I endear myself to my leadership versus what's the, what's the real deal, right? I think we all get to a point in our career where we have enough experience we know you can look and say, I know what needs to happen here. And yet you're tentative or you're you're unable because of the whether it's going to disrupt someone else's job or it's going to maybe change the strategy or put something at risk or whatever. Don't be afraid to 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 put it out there. And again, a lot of that came back from you know from my experience at Amazon, which is you know one of their biggest one of these fourteen leadership principles is uh, disagree and commit. If you disagree and you're if you're in the shipping dock, you know you can be in the room with a CEO and disagree on something. And if you've got the data and the logic and the understanding to support it, and people look at it pragmatically, you have an opportunity to make a, a good positive change. Don't shy away from it in place of placating someone else or just following the strategy without really objecting to it if you really feel strongly about something. It's a great way to finish, Jim. Have you enjoyed being on On Target? I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, it's been great. Wonderful. Well, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with the audience. To anyone that's been out there listening or watching on YouTube, please take a moment to share with a colleague, like, comment, share and subscribe. And we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Great. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.